I've been fishing in Alaska for the last six summers with my dad. Never seen anything unexplainable, but have been creeped out a few times. A lot of it comes from lack of sleep since we are out there for up to 60 hours at a time with no more than four hours between every time we put the net out. Anyway, here's a few things. I was on deck by myself late at night and a tree wrapped in ball kelp got pulled on. Looked like some kind of giant squid. We've had a 600 pound shark caught in our net. That was scary. Caught two porpoises at once. They had already drowned when we got to them. Not so much creepy as it was startling, then it was just sad. Found two oil drum-sized pieces of styrofoam about 300 yards away from each other. We figure they were tsunami debris from the one that hit Japan in 2011. Interesting that they would stay so close together for so far. Found an acoustic guitar in its case floating near a beach. The strings had rusted away, but the body was in good shape. Really, the weirdest things are in my own head. I'll have waking dreams where I can't move or something very dangerous is happening. I sometimes wake up completely disoriented and nervous, which makes working hard. I should probably stop fishing. Three months ago, my wife and I decided to take a drive up Mary's Peak Road in Oregon. We were excited to explore the highest mountain in the state's coast range, towering at 497 feet. The weather was crisp and cool, with plenty of snow still covering the peak in mid-April. As we were coming down the mountain around 4.30 p.m., we spotted a beautiful waterfall surrounded by wildflowers. The sight was too enchanting to pass up, so we decided to stop and take in the view. I remember stepping out of the car, the chilly air nipping at my exposed skin, and feeling a sudden, inexplicable sensation. It was as if the hair on my neck stood on end, and for a moment, time itself seemed to freeze. Just then, I heard a faint tink-tink on the ground, followed by a flash past the car window. Startled, I looked down and saw an old, rusty, dented, blue two-pound coffee can lying near us. It looked like it was from a brand I recognized, maybe Maxwell. If I had been standing outside at that moment, it would have hit me. The sudden impact and the strangeness of the object made my heart race with fear. Panicked, my wife and I immediately got back in the car and prepared to leave. As I glanced back towards the road, I caught a glimpse of a tall, blurry, reddish-brown figure standing about 200 feet away, just beyond the guardrail. My mind raced, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. Was it just a tree, or could it have been something more? I've always been fascinated by the stories of Bigfoot and have read extensively about the elusive creature. Although I couldn't be sure, the figure I saw that day bore a striking resemblance to the descriptions I've come across in my research. I've heard accounts of Bigfoot throwing objects to scare away intruders, and the coffee can seem to fit the bill. I couldn't help but wonder if we had unintentionally stumbled upon its territory. We didn't stick around long enough to find out. The fear and uncertainty that gripped us in that moment were enough to send us on our way, leaving the mysterious figure and the unexplained coffee can behind. To this day, I can't say for certain what we encountered on Mary's Peak Road, but a part of me hopes that it was indeed a Bigfoot reminding us that some things in this world are still left to be discovered. This is a nest sighting, not an actual creature sighting. I was a member of an archaeology survey crew, and we had hiked in along an old, overgrown logging RR grade on the side of Pelican Butt. This grade took off from an old, closed logging road. We were approximately one mile from the end of the closed road when we found a very large nest on the ground, which measured about seven feet in diameter. It was constructed of pine needles and small twigs. The nest material was about 8-12 feet in height. It was about 150 meters yards uphill from the old grade that we were following. The only reason we found it at all was because a crew member saw a spotted owl in a tree up the hill and we went up to get a closer look. The owl flew up the hill a bit farther, 
and we followed, trying to catch a good glimpse of the owl as most of us had never seen one in the wild. That's when we noticed the huge nest on the ground. Was the owl leading us there? All six crew members felt it was a Bigfoot nest. We reported it to the wildlife biologist back at the office, and he said there are some large birds that make nests on the ground, which can be up to three feet in diameter, such as cranes, but he's never heard of one that large. Also, cranes nest in meadows near water, not on the side of a mountain several miles from water. When we suggested a Bigfoot nest, he just shrugged and said, maybe? This was a very remote location and hadn't been logged in years, probably since the 1950s. We also discovered a very old logging camp archaeology site dating from the Ely 19s which had old glass bottles still intact, which was evidence that no one had been there in a very long time, as most other old sites which were in more accessible places had been looted for the glass bottles. Point being, this was an area where no one goes, so if this were a hoax, it's a terrible place to do it, as chances are, no one is going to see it. Unfortunately, no one took a photo. While I was stationed in Cherry Point, I had the duty of inspecting the Marines' barracks on Thursday morning after field day. Most rooms were normal. Dust bunnies here, scum stained there, but one day I stumbled a crow as something disturbing. I went through one Marine's room, he was an avi cat, and I noticed his wall locker was unlocked. Whenever I see unlocked wall lockers, I would go through them just for kicks. Well, this devil had somehow accumulated about 20 pairs of women's underwear. Some were even marked. When confronted, SNM stated, it's not a crime to have women's thongs. Turns out, it is when you steal it from the laundry room. This story is my husband's and occurred in the 1970s. He was erecting fences with a mate in rural Springbrook, which is in the Gold Coast hinterland about 70 kilometers south of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. There's a very hilly region with dense rainforest. They were cutting a fence line when they smelled a horrible stench and heard a noise that sounded like a combination of a pig grunting and a dog growling about 20 meters away. They couldn't see anything due to the dense bush. My husband turned to his mate, who was a big man, to find him already running full speed in the opposite direction. He then took off after him. They returned to the job two days later after stopping at the forest ranger station on the way to ask him if there had been any reports of wild boars in the area. The ranger laughed and said it was possible and then told them that part of his job was to keep the walking and hiking trails clear of weeds and brush. He'd walk the trails with a machete looking just ahead of him at his feet and clearing any unwanted vegetation when he smelled a stench and the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. Looking up, he saw a bipedal brown hairy creature staring at him about 13 meters ahead. He froze and stared at it until it turned and disappeared into the thick scrub. My husband and his mate continued on to the fence job, but did not hear, smell, or see anything again. A few years later, they were working in a similar landscape, near the location of the previous encounter. They had heard from several local farmers who had heard similar noises to what they had heard previously, and who had seen a hairy bipedal creature run into their paddocks, grab a sheep or a calf, and then run back into the dense forest. There are Yowie researchers who have had similar encounters and have taken thermal images of a large bipedal creature. We know they exist. When we get the chance, my father and a few of his friends go camping up in Baxter State Park in Maine. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a pretty secluded section of the state and pretty much everything surrounding the park grounds is also wilderness. While up there, we took a hike to some fishing ponds buried deep in the woods. The trails were mostly overgrown, and the destination was a place that you really had to be in the know to find it. My dad's friend who was accompanying is a native Mainer and knows lots of secret fishing spots like that. 
Needless to say, not too many people walk those trails, and the closest town is hours and hours away. Well, anyways, my dad's friend starts talking about this old store in the woods he remembered from his childhood. He said fishermen in the area knew about it, and you could get bait and ice and few other minor conveniences. He said he hadn't been there since childhood, but faintly remembered it being somewhere near where we were. I remember thinking it was bullshit, just a made-up story my dad's friend is a charming guy, but he's known to tell some tall tales. Considering how far out in the wilderness we were I thought it was absolutely ludicrous for any store or any other human for that matter to be nearby. I mean the closest road you could take a car on was about two hours from where we were on the trail. But sure enough, about 45 minutes later, we come to this pond and the trail forks. My dad's friend just says, This is it. This is the path to the store. I remember it. So he starts walking down one of the paths, which extended a good ways about half a mile around the perimeter of the pond. We get to a clearing in the woods and it just opens up into this huge field with about 10 of what appeared to be houses or living compounds. It slightly reminded me of that town specter from Big Fish. I was absolutely shocked to see any trace of humanity. If you know the area of Maine I'm talking about, you would be too. The place was completely empty, but none of the buildings looked run down. The whole property was definitely maintained. We started to walk around, and after a couple minutes, this really old guy with a thick Maine accent came out of one of the houses, and my dad's friend went up to talk to him. Turns out the store was real, and we bought some ice and left. I half expected to hear the Twilight Zone theme when I saw this place. Not really creepy, but very mysterious. I'm still shocked that such a strange random place like this exists in the world and I still have so many unanswered questions to this day. Why so far out in the middle of nowhere? What were all the other buildings for? Where was everyone else? How does this one guy live two hours from the closest road and survive, let alone get any business? I was 61 years old when I had the most unusual encounter of my life. I'm an unassuming man, steady and phlegmatic, with a thick brush of white hair and a craggy outdoorsman's face. I enjoy a pint and a dram, but I never indulge when I'm working. I've spent my entire adult life working as a forester in the Ditchmont Woods located in Livingston, West Lothian, Scotland. On the morning of Friday, November 9, 1979, I set off with my red setter Lara to check the woods on Ditchmont Law for stray sheep and cattle. It was a damp day, and as I parked the van and set off down the forest track, the noise of the Edinburgh-Glasgow motorway was muffled by the thick, dark fir trees. The dog ran ahead, and my trudging Wellingtons made the only sound. Then, as I turned a corner into a clearing filled with light, I saw it an unidentified flying object UFO. The object had a dark gray color, and its texture was like an emery board, with small brighter highlighted areas against a darker background. The appearance of the exterior seemed to change, as if the UFO was attempting to camouflage itself. I estimated its size to be around 18-20 feet in diameter, and about 12 feet high. It looked as if it was mounted on a ring, resembling a hat with a brim. There were also protruding stems topped by propellers on the outside of the craft. Nothing on the object was moving at the time. Suddenly, two small spheres rushed at me. They were like miniature versions of the large craft, making a sound as they approached, with spikes on the outside making contact with the ground. They stopped by my side and attached themselves to my trousers, dragging me back toward the UFO. I was overwhelmed by an extremely strong smell, causing me to struggle for air, and I soon lost consciousness. When I regained consciousness, the UFO and the smaller spheres were gone, but Laura, my red setter, was still with me. She was unsettled, running around and barking madly. As I tried to call out to her, I realized I had no voice. I couldn't stand either. Eventually, I crawled back the way I had come for about 300 feet. 
Gradually, I was able to stand up and walk back to my pickup truck. I attempted to contact the forestry headquarters using my two-way radio, but found that my voice had not yet returned. I tried to drive back home in my pickup truck, but it got stuck in the mud. So I began the long walk back to my house, which was approximately a mile away, and finally arrived at 11.15 a.m. My entire experience had lasted just over an hour. By the time I reached home, my wife was shocked to see my condition covered in mud with torn pants. I began telling her the story of what had happened. She wanted to call the police, but I was against it, considering the subject matter. However, I allowed her to call my job supervisor, Malcolm Drummond, and inform him about the incident. While she made the calls, I took a bath to clean up. Drummond, being eager to find out what had happened, called a physician and immediately drove to my house. He questioned me while I was still in the bathtub. We both agreed that there must be some kind of physical evidence left on the ground by either the craft or the small spheres, so we headed back to the area to investigate. However, Drummond couldn't find the exact location. Dr. Gordon Adams arrived and examined my condition. He found grazed areas on my left leg and under my chin, but no apparent head injuries. At that time, my body temperature, blood pressure, and other functions seemed normal. Adams called for an ambulance to take me to the hospital for a head x-ray and a counseling session. However, I decided to postpone the hospital visit as I had planned to visit relatives over the weekend and didn't want to miss the trip. Word of the encounter spread, and soon the press caught wind of it. By Sunday, the incident was known all over the United Kingdom, and within a week, it had gained worldwide attention. The story was featured in television documentaries, magazines, and books. Even the company I worked for erected a plaque at the site to commemorate the event, although it was later stolen. The local police, inexperienced in dealing with UFO cases, didn't discount my description of the incident. They took testimony from me, my wife, and Dr. Adams. Due to the assault involved, they sent my clothing from that day for forensic examination. A cursory overview revealed torn pant legs at the hip area, and traces of a powder were found. However, it turned out that the powder was just maize starch transferred from the bag used to send in the trousers. The police also investigated any flights that might have occurred that day, but found no evidence of planes, helicopters, or any other equipment in the area. The ground markings, consisting of two parallel ladder-like tracks with holes, confirmed that something had been on the spot I indicated. I was well respected by people in the area, and there was no reason to believe I would hoax such an incident. I had a history of illnesses and surgeries, but there was nothing in my medical records suggesting head injuries or psychosis. I know what I saw, I insisted. My firm belief in my story led the police to open a criminal investigation for assault, making it the only such case in Britain arising from a UFO sighting. The investigation remains open. My neighbors, however, were more skeptical, and eventually I decided to move away to an undisclosed address. Nevertheless, I became the most famous witness to aliens in Britain. My trousers were analyzed by psychics at spiritualist meetings, and on the anniversaries of the sighting, UFO spotters would gather in the clearing, hoping for another encounter. The aliens didn't stop there. Since that November day, West Lothian skies have been filled with glimmering disks, strange lights, and bouncing fireballs. The Falkirk Triangle now records around 300 UFO sightings a year, more than any other place on Earth. The Forge Restaurant in Bonnybridge, where fireballs sail over the trees and wingless planes are seen in the fields, has become a hot spot. Some experts suggest that West Lothian may be a thin place, offering a window from Earth into another dimension. If we accept my account as true, I was abducted by something otherworldly for about 20 minutes on November 9, 1979. No evidence has emerged to disprove my story. I was respected by those who knew me, and I never sought to profit from my alleged experience.
Normally, I get off work right around 10 p.m. This was at night when I saw this. I'm also going to leave my name out of this just in case it could hurt my law enforcement credentials. I don't know what I saw, but it was some sort of canine. I was driving down an isolated road that leads to one house on the other side of the hill. I haven't seen any cars or people on this road. It's more of a way for me to get home quicker without having to go all the way around by using this nifty shortcut. But as I'm coming up the hill on my way home, something in the middle of the road catches my eye. Well, it was more so on the side of the road, trying to make its way towards the middle. Before I even had time to think about stopping or barely swerving, whatever it was was already up against my car with its front paws and claws up against the hood. This thing was huge. I slammed my gas pedal, hoping it would get out of the way, but I began hearing this little rumbling noise like this dog growling at me, so I got out of there fast. This thing went down on all fours from two, and was now running alongside my car for a little bit before dropping back down behind me, disappearing into the darkness. Everything about this thing was huge. I can't get over it. It had massive legs and were just big. The entire body was big. Its head was huge. It had a very long snout and pointed ears. It looked kind of like a wolf, but different. The largest wolf I've ever seen. And those eyes, its eyes were from a whole other world. They were bright red. Thanks for listening to my story. Feel free to share it if you'd like, as long as you keep my name out of it. A few years ago, my wife and I were living near Laneville, Texas, which is located in Rusk County on farm to market route 225. My wife loves gardens, and we always had a chicken pen. Our adult children enjoy the garden produce and the fresh eggs from our hens. We lived this way for many years after we moved there in 1981. We had no intention of ever going back to the big city. The incident that I'm writing about happened in 2015, and it signaled the end of our chicken business. Each morning I have to walk down to the chicken pen that was 150 feet behind our house. After I fed the chickens and checked their water, I headed back to the house to eat breakfast. I had guns, but I never carried one around our own property. At that time we had a terrier who went everywhere we did. She had never shown any inclination to be afraid of anything, but on this day I was in the middle of my chores when the terrier stopped dead still. She was fixed on something beyond the tree line behind the chicken pen, and the hair on her neck and back stood straight up. She was frozen in place and didn't move a single muscle. I shifted my gaze to the tree line and what I saw caught my breath. I knew I was looking at something I had never seen before. This thing apparently had been walking just outside the tree line, and it stopped when we did. It seemed to be the size of a wolf. Its head was light gray, and there wasn't a single hair on its body. Its rear legs made it appear as though it could easily walk on all fours or stand upright like a man. The tail was the same length as its body, and from where I stood it looked like a dog until it turned revealing a head that looked more like a feline than a canine with similar short pointed ears. The eyes were something unworldly. They were bright blue and bored into us for about 15 seconds showing no sign of fear. It then turned and walked to the woods and out of sight. I tried to make sense of what I had just witnessed as I hurried and tossed the chicken feed into the pen. I realized that the terrier had already hightailed it back to the house ahead of me. Over breakfast, I told my wife about the encounter, and from that day onward the terrier would not go near the chicken pen unless she was with me. Even then she stayed behind me always watching the woods. I did too. It's strange how random things can suddenly make sense once you see a connection. A few weeks later, a feral dog got into the pen and was trying to kill a chicken. I was going to gather eggs and ever since the strange encounter that day, I had begun carrying a rifle with me. I shot the dog, got a shovel, and dug a hole behind the pen. The feral dog was the size of a large collie and must have weighed 80 or so pounds. I had to drag the carcass to the hole and roll it in. 
After burying the dog and securing the pen, I went back to the house, and that was the end of it, or so we thought. Two days later, while feeding the chickens, I noticed something odd behind the pen. I walked around to take a look. What I found was a hole two feet across right where I had buried the dead dog and the carcass was gone. There were no drag marks, so whatever it was, it was big enough to pull the body up out of the dirt and carry it off without leaving a trail. I searched all over the back of our property and never found anything that would suggest some sort of scavenger was at work. My wife and I were the only ones who knew what I had buried back there. The next morning when I went to feed the chickens, it looked like a crime scene. They were all dead and their headless remains were scattered about the pen. The rooster had been tossed 20 feet from the ground into the top of a persimmon tree. Oddly enough, given the scale of the carnage, there was not a single drop of blood anywhere. The gate was latched, and there was no hole in the fence or signs of something that gained entry by digging under the fence. But the killer had left some evidence behind. There were footprints and deep gouges made by three long claws that were estimated to be two and a half inches long. I drove over to my neighbor's house and asked him to have a look at the tracks. He was a hunter who was born and raised in the area, but even he was stumped. He suggested we call a friend of his who was a constable and another longtime resident. He looked at the tracks and examined the dead chickens. After he noticed the dead rooster dangling in the tree, he warned us not to go out at night without a gun. We decided not to replace the chickens. Not long after that incident, we moved to another location. We just didn't want to cross paths with whatever was lurking around the property. I live in Michigan and regularly go out trapping or coyote hunting. One day I'm taking a long-time friend hunting for the first time. He lived out of state so he wasn't familiar with the area and its types of people and habits, so to speak. Anyways, we were walking along and unfortunately the coyote spot I usually used had now been useless after so many uses of traps and shots taken. So we went a bit deeper to look for a better spot. The coyotes had a den in some lowlands and thick brush. I don't usually go out there, but I didn't want my friend's first hunt to be a boring one, so we pressed on. After a bit of walking, my friend noticed a blood trail, and I assumed another hunter hit and wounded one. I figured we would track to make sure it didn't suffer, so we followed the blood trail. The strange part was we didn't notice any tracks, and it was winter so tracks would be easy as day to spot. However, when we reached the source, we ended up finding something a lot more gruesome. We came across the dead bodies of a man and woman. The man had a crossbow bolt in his stomach and looked like he had been stabbed. The woman was stabbed much worse and looked like she had been, quote, sexually used. Needless to say, we called the police. I've never been back to those woods since, and now when I got out I wear body armor underneath my vest and always go with a partner. I'm always going to go back to the forest, and this isn't a hunting story, but here's one unknown thing that really freaked me out. I was hiking the highest peak in Utah with a small group over one-fourth of July weekend, and we had to backpack in about 12 miles to where we would set up camp. One of the guys in our group owned two pack llamas and brought them along to carry some stuff. The owner said that llamas are very territorial and will make a high-pitched gobbling sound if they feel threatened. I thought that was weird and didn't really believe him. On the second night after summiting the peak, I had a crazy headache and wasn't getting any sleep in my tiny single-person tent. I had been laying there for hours after everyone else had gone to bed, and it was late into the night when I started hearing gobbling from the llamas in our camp. Sitting alone in a tent with no protection, and not knowing what is looming around my campsite did not make for a fun night, and that was the last time I slept in a tent. In the morning everyone said they were asleep and did not hear anything. In the shadowy woods there stood a remote cabin that had long been forgotten by the world, 
The cabin was nestled far from civilization, its weathered walls and creaking timbers bearing witness to the passage of time. It had seen countless hunters seeking refuge within its walls over the years, but none had ever truly understood the chilling secret that dwelled within. One crisp autumn weekend, my friends, and I decided to escape the bustle of city life and embark on a hunting trip. We were a group of seasoned hunters, drawn together by our shared love for the outdoors and the thrill of the chase. The cabin, hidden amidst the wilderness, seemed like the perfect place to call home for a few days. As we approached the cabin, the beauty of the surrounding forest took our breath away. The trees were adorned with the fiery hues of fall, and the air was filled with the crisp scent of pine. We couldn't have asked for a more picturesque setting for our hunting weekend. The cabin itself, though showing signs of wear and tear, had an undeniable charm. Its quaint appearance with a front porch and a chimney that released plumes of smoke into the brisk air was straight out of a postcard. We eagerly unpacked our gear and settled in, ready for a few days of camaraderie and adventure. The first night was filled with laughter and stories, accompanied by the comforting warmth of a crackling fire. We shared our hunting plans and strategies, all the while unaware of the dark history that clung to the cabin's walls. It wasn't until the second night that we began to feel a shift in the cabin's atmosphere. It started with subtle noises, soft footsteps echoing in the hallway, doors creaking open and closing on their own, and a persistent tapping against the window pane. We dismissed them as the quirks of an old cabin, but the unease settled in the pit of our stomachs. As the hours passed, the atmosphere grew increasingly oppressive. A cold breeze swept through the cabin, extinguishing the fire, despite the fact that all windows and doors were securely shut. The cabin seemed to come alive with eerie shadows that danced along the walls, their movements unsettlingly deliberate. A sense of dread descended upon us, and we exchanged worried glances. That's when we heard it a faint, mournful wail that seemed to emanate from the very walls themselves. The hairs on the back of our necks stood on end as the sound grew louder, echoing through the cabin with an otherworldly, anguished quality. We knew then that we were not alone. The cabin was haunted, and the restless spirit of a previous owner had been awakened by our presence. It was a truth we couldn't deny, no matter how much we wanted to rationalize the inexplicable. The spirit, it seemed, was trying to communicate with us. We could feel its presence, a malevolent force that bore the weight of unresolved pain and anger. It yearned for something, something that had been denied to it in life, and it was determined to make us understand. We tried to leave to escape the cabin's oppressive grasp, but each attempt was thwarted by an invisible force that seemed determined to keep us trapped. Panic and fear took hold as we realized the truth our hunting weekend had become a nightmarish ordeal. As the night wore on, we huddled together, desperate for answers. We began to piece together the story of the cabin's previous owner, a man who had met a grisly end within these very walls. His restless spirit sought retribution, and it seemed that we were the unwitting targets of his torment. We spent the night in terror, our sleepless hours filled with chilling encounters and ghostly apparitions. The cabin had become a prison, its walls closing in around us as the vengeful spirit grew more insistent in its demands. By the time the first rays of dawn broke through the trees, we were physically and emotionally drained. The spirit's presence had left an indelible mark on us, and we knew that we could no longer stay in the cabin. With trembling hands, we gathered our belongings and made a final attempt to leave. As we crossed the threshold, a bone-chilling scream pierced the air, echoing through the forest. It was a sound that would haunt our nightmares for years to come. We fled the cursed cabin, never looking back, and made our way back to the safety of civilization. The hunting weekend we had so eagerly anticipated had become a harrowing ordeal, a brush with the supernatural that left us forever changed. We learned a powerful lesson that weekend one that transcended our love for the hunt and the allure of the wilderness. Some secrets are best left undisturbed, 
and some cabins, no matter how picturesque, are forever haunted by the restless spirits of their past. This is my story with the Mothman of Chicago. I genuinely believe this one in particular roosts in bus woods in the western suburbs Rolling Meadows area. I am in a suburb next door. This occurred right at the start of the pandemic in early 2020. Many things were shut and this moonless night was easily the darkest I'd ever experienced in the suburbs. Usually light pollution means you can see 24 seven, but this night was particularly dark and quiet. It was like 2 a.m. and I'm in the garage tinkering on one of the bikes listening to some music, not super loud when there was a crash on the roof of my garage. I've had raccoons jump off the tree onto it before, but this sounded like a person my size just jumped onto it. The whole building shook my garage as an old horse barn, relatively small for a barn but big for a garage and detached and across the driveway. Well, I heard this and I knew it couldn't be a raccoon, but that's what my mind went to. So I grab a shovel and step outside trying to look up, but it's so dark I can't see a darn thing. As I round the corner of the garage into the front part of my yard, which was so dark I couldn't see my neighbor's house, I swear on my life I hear something jump down and land maybe 15 yards in front of me. I can't see anything. I don't remember hearing anything breathe, snarl, growl, or anything like that which you would if you were face to face with a raccoon. They're noisy. So I'm standing there, dead stopped holding the shovel like a walking stick unsure of what to do or even what's happening. I had a very visceral feeling that I was squaring down with something my size though I felt it. I knew I couldn't just stand there and wait to become a victim. I have a mentality that I never will be one. I'll throw the first stone every time. I raise the shovel to my other hand, taking a defensive grip and step forward, only taking one or two steps before I hear three heavy footfalls. Then I hear the fence behind my garage rattle, and then I hear a whooshing sound like a great pair of beating wings. I genuinely believe when I stepped forward whatever was there turned, jumped on the fence and took off flying. I never even caught a glimpse. I was 100% sober, no drinking, and I don't do drugs. I was not sleep-deprived, I only got off work an hour and a half prior. I think my garage was the only light for miles and my music drew it in. No one, and I mean no one else, was for a mile in any direction as far as I could tell. As soon as that thing left, I shut down the garage and went inside somewhat shaken, thinking, Holy crap! I damn near got into a fight with something, and I don't even know what it was. The reason I think that it was the Mothman and why I think it roosts in bus woods is another story entirely. This is not an embellishment. This is a real event that happened to me, albeit only one time ever. The creepiest dive of my life. Two buddies of mine and I were on a night dive in the Puget Sound hunting prawns. It was about 1 a.m. and we're a good 100 feet deep, the pitchest black you could imagine. We used to do this thing on night dives where we'd get in a circle, turn off our lights, then stir up the water and watch the bioluminescence float around us like floating stars in a black watery space. Beautiful. Only this one time we turn off our lights, stir up the water, and the water glows just enough to reveal a fourth person sitting in our circle. We were at a dive resort, so it wasn't so odd to see another diver. Only it was 1 a.m. we'd seen no one else prepping a dive at the dock. He was also alone, which was odd considering the dangerous conditions of a night dive in those waters, and he had no fins or gloves. I don't know how he swam so well without fins or didn't get hypothermia without boots or gloves. We wore dry suits because it was so cold, but this dude was in a wet suit with exposed skin, and we thought we saw a giant gash in one of the legs. So the three of us all notice him, and we're too scared to move. I can hear my buddies panting in their regs, and the guy just smiles and waves, then swims away. Whenever you think you're alone and someone just shows up, like in an alley at night, it's weird as F. 100 feet underwater at night is terrifying. 
The beast was never clearly seen, but around 1992, while hunting a swamp just before dark here in Louisiana, I was stalk hunting while wading through knee-deep water. I saw water movement through some very thick hedgerow-like brush. At first, I believed it to be ducks, so I sneaked up to the edge of the brush for a clear shot. But when I got there, I could see movement through the thick brush six feet over the water, and at the same time, there were small wakes in the water coming through the brush every time it moved. I was less than ten feet from this animal, and I could hear it sniffing the air. It suddenly froze still when it picked up my scent. We were frozen in a noiseless standoff for at least two minutes. It couldn't see me, but it was looking for me because it knew I was very close. I knew this was something weird and my situation wasn't good. So while mostly hidden, I slowly and quietly over a minute or so replaced the bird shot in my 12 gauge with three three magnums as in buckshot. When I raised my gun to ready fire, it saw me, and when it did I believe it thought that I was closer than it expected, because that thing screamed like a wild hog, being killed x10 very hair raising loud. It then suddenly leaped several feet out of the water, and about twelve or so feet out into deeper water of about eight, ten feet deep. In that instant when it jumped I could see its back or something slightly above the brush. It had spiked hair. When it landed in the water it sounded like a three hundred plus pound animal splash. It remained underwater until it reached the other side of the slough. When it came out on land I couldn't see it. I then made a huge circle around the animal to try and cut it off in an ambush. I wasn't really scared because even though it was God knows what, I knew I scared it more. I mean I sneaked up less than 10 feet of this thing, and it had no clue I was even there until it winded me. Besides at that range, a 12 gauge with that load of shots is like being shot 10 times with an AR-15 in one spot. A 12-gauge load like that can put a hole the size of your fist through a wild hog. That's an animal that has one of the toughest hides on the planet. There's nothing on this earth that will survive very long with a rib cage shot from that load at that range. I knew this already, that's why I give chase. Anyway, I tried ambushing with no luck. I wanted to continue hunting it, but all I had was a small pocket light and it was only about ten minutes before total darkness. Before I set out of the swamp, I looked and found its tracks. I found canine-like tracks about four or five feet wide and six, seven foot long. They were bipedal tracks set about six feet apart due to the animal running. There's a lot more to the story, but I will leave it at this for now. I gathered enough info about this animal over the years that I'm convinced it can be hunted and killed. It walks on two legs and has canine-like feet, so it's whatever you want to call it. I just know it exists, and I see it more as an animal than a monster. My girlfriend's dad told us he was out moose hunting when they came across three guys from out of state looking to party before a wedding, get drunk, and have a good old time. They were loud as F for the next two nights to the point the dad's group went and checked it out. The groom had been tied up and was beaten because he cheated on his bride with one of his friend's significant others. After he was rescued, he told them they held a gun to his head and he was most likely going to be murdered in rural Alaska. My dad used to take me hunting on public hunting land in the late 80s, early 90s, and we would always, and I mean always, see the same affable elderly gentleman out there. The nicest man. A bird watcher. He would wear head-to-toe bright orange, so no one would mistake him as prey, and he stayed on the main roads and rode a bicycle. Just a fantastic human who spent hours talking to my dad about wildlife and life in general. All of game wardens in the area knew him, and so did most, of not all of the regular hunters. Again, this man never went into the woods, wore bright orange, which included a bright orange hat, and rode a bicycle. He practically glowed. One day, this wonderful man was found on the road, shot meticulously through the head. No one was ever arrested for his death. 
My father knew that no one could honestly state they thought he was a deer because of his precautions. We knew the poor man had been murdered. We never went hunting anywhere near there ever again. Three teenage witnesses were playing basketball from 6 to 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. The weather was clear and sunny, and they were across the street from a fire station in Fairview, New Jersey. While walking back to a friend's home, the reporting witness noticed that the area was empty of cars and people when normally there would be 50 to 100 people in the park. The witness stated that he observed rainbow colors out of the corner of his right eye. When he looked, he saw a shining silver metallic saucer with round tinted windows. He alerted his two friends who also saw the craft. He heard and felt whirring air and a roaring sound. His shirt was flapping as if in a five mile an hour wind, but there was no wind. They were paralyzed and could not run. They later arrived back at his friend's home with no memory of walking there. The witness discussed the incident with two friends, both now deceased, and they had no memory of being on the craft as he did. He recalls seeing them on operating tables, but he was standing approximately 30 feet away. The craft appeared larger inside than outside, possibly 400 feet across. About 25 creatures, approximately 4 feet tall, were present with about 10 to 15 around him and the rest around his friends. The creatures were gray in color with large round heads and large black eyes. The creatures were touching him all over. They were speaking telepathically and were surprised when they realized that he could hear them. His mother had previously told him that psychic abilities were common in their family, but he had never really believed it. He asked why they were there. His impression was that they were friendly and curious and meant no harm. He believed that they were trying to help his two friends who both had heart problems, and he believes that their lives may have been extended by the aid rendered on the craft. He remembers looking out the window and down onto the basketball court where they had been playing. He could see other beings moving about in long corridors. He remembers seeing the craft ascend after they had been returned. It moved up and to the right, then left, then up and away, leaving a rainbow-colored trail behind. When he returned to his home, his mother said he seemed changed, and he replied, It's no big deal, Mom. Before this report, he had only confided this story to his two daughters because he did not feel that anyone would believe him. I wasn't alone. I was working on a shrimp boat that was out to sea. Unbeknownst to me, most of the coastal shrimpers just go out for the day. For reasons unknown to me, our captain took us way the F out there. I think he said something about trying out new shrimping grounds. Anyway, we were heading into a storm turned out to be a Cat 2 hurricane, and the boat was rocking. We got our rescue here I and waited for the inevitable. It never came, but none have slept that night. It was eerie passing through the eye, totally calm while everything else raged around us. We had all made our peace. The next morning we had either gone through it, or we came back the way we came. Either way, we were on the edge of the storm. The captain was tired, so we took the day off. The first mate and I sat on the deck for a fair bit of the day, watching the last of the hurricane and the start of a new storm. We thought we had this smaller storm beat. We lowered the boom masts again and braced for heavy seas. The first mate brought along a bunch of weed and taught me how to roll a joint in your hand and how to smoke it. By this time, Iz was getting late in the day and the storm was getting more energetic. Lots of thunder and lightning. We could see the reflective light and hear the thunder so we knew it was at least 10 miles out. The first mate, who was pretty stingy otherwise, rolled me a big old fat joint and told me to enjoy it. Of course I was in hog heaven. It never occurred to why the skinflint was sharing all this with me. He absolutely didn't have to, hadn't before, and wouldn't afterwards. At some point it dawns on me, so I ask why now, and not last night when I was wholly terrified in a life vest and high-vis ocean survival suit thing. 
He points off in the distance, and I see a little itty-bitty funnel cloud. Looks like a tornado. In the open water, they're called water spouts, and they're just as dangerous. So I get kinda worried. The first mate laughed and said look around. There were at least 13 water spouts within a few miles of us. The first mate wasn't watching the storms. He was watching these water spouts pop up every so often, getting a little closer each time. By now the captain is awake, and we're booking it anywhere but where we were. By the time all was said and done we had gotten passed by three different spouts, got a rain of sand dollars, jellyfish, and a load of other ocean goodies. We had one go directly over us and touched down ten yards from the deck. I was scared of the hurricane, but these salty dogs were totally and completely terrified of the water spouts. It was and is by far the creepiest thing that's ever happened to me. Noises in the woods being followed by a black bear are all upsetting, but for some reason being in that boat at that time got under my skin. I am in the army and while training in Hohenfels, Germany. Our platoon was sitting on a screen line conducting an area reconnaissance mission. During the night, the guy on guard heard someone bang three times on the left side of the Bradley, which doesn't make sense because you would need another large metal object to make such a noise. Less than five seconds later, he heard the same three knocks on top of the turret. A few seconds pass and a high-pitched tone comes through the headset with three knocks on the back door of the Bradley along with someone screaming, Hey, let me in. This wakes me and one other up and we open the door thinking it's someone in our platoon who was trying to get in touch with us. There was only complete darkness, we waited about 30 seconds, geared up and checked a 50M semi-circle around our Bradley finding nothing. We get back inside and every fault light in the turret is on with some blinking, they don't blink ever. The radios were also completely dead. We restarted the turret and everything worked fine. Called over the net to see if anyone was near our area and no one was. Next day we asked the OCS essentially referees and no one else was out the night prior. Shortly after we discovered an old tank half buried and rusted out near our position. We came to the conclusion that it must have been ghost Nazis.